How are we doing? Ah, there we go. All right, that's better. I don't need to talk so loud now. All right, start over. Hey, I'm Robert Christensen. I'm the Vice President of Cloud Technology Partners and Global Delivery and Innovation. Uh, today here we have a great set of folks who are going to take us through the five lessons learned about going to AWS and the specifically public cloud with Jeff Dowds. He's the CTO of Vanguard. So uh, to say that uh, we have some credible people on stage would be an understatement as well as Mike Cavus, who was uh, riding shotgun with Jeff the whole process. So uh, uh, we have a very unique experience in that we have two individuals who are specifically can tell you uh, all the black eyes they got, all the successes, the champagne, the not so good times, all the good details about what it was like to go to AWS and all the reasons why and the things that you have to look out for. So uh, uh, this is, there will be some Q&A in here, so there's two microphones right there. Feel free to step up and ask a question if you see or feel the need to do so. Um, and we'll get started. So my role here is to facilitate the two people who actually did the work uh, and was involved with it. So thanks to you both gentlemen for, for joining us today. And yeah, the people who did the work actually are probably sitting out here. In the back <laughs> and back right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. So, hey, Jeff, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, Vanguard and AWS and why that was a competitive edge for the organization? Uh, sure, Robert. So, I guess it was, a, it was just about 24 months ago. Um, Vanguard was on a, uh, a strategy to do hybrid cloud, and we define hybrid as, uh, hey, we're going to do private cloud first, and then we're going to move to public cloud. And uh, I was telling these guys at lunch, you know, if you went to a conference maybe three years ago and you, you said, hey, who's doing cloud, maybe 60, 70% of the attendees would have put their hands up. And you know, it was keep, keep your hands up if you're doing public cloud. Most of the hands came down. So you know, what we were doing two years ago in private cloud was pretty much what you know, most, most large firms were doing. Nobody had really committed to the public cloud. But um, I was, uh, I was at, a, at a conference up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and I was listening to a, another financial firm who was in the same business that we're in, so asset management. And um, we were exchanging, you know, our positions on cloud, and he had said that they had just committed to go public. And it, it, it gave me a chance to kind of pause and, you know, think about whether we were doing the right thing. We were about, we were about 12 months into, uh, you know, our private cloud strategy. And uh, I think in that 12 months, we started to realize the enormity of what it would take to to basically provide the kind of capability that you heard in uh, Jassy's keynote this morning, right? You know, to, to, to try to do that on-prem, you know, the cost to do that was intimidating, the time to do that was intimidating, uh, and um, the source of value probably wasn't going to be there because you were still going to end up providing the same amount of compute for your peak workloads if you had a private cloud. Uh, you really weren't moving towards a consumption model. You were still in a provision model. So in addition to the difficulty, the source of value just wasn't there. So uh, it was roughly about two years ago we decided to pivot. Uh, and uh, we decided to go public. You know, there was obviously a, a handful of public cloud providers. Uh, we chose Amazon for obvious reasons. All you have to do, again, is listen to the, the keynote this morning. It's, it's clear why you know, hitching your wagon to Amazon you know, is a pretty good choice. Uh, but our, our decision to go public was really about uh, uh, being able to really capture the sources of value, uh, getting agility into the firm, uh, reducing our costs, and I th I'd say most importantly, 
getting access to the kind of innovation that uh, you all heard about this morning. So that was, that was the reason we pivoted. And um, you know, you know, the slide talks about competitive advantage. I couldn't imagine, no matter what business you are in, if you're trying to compete uh, with an on-prem data center with a competitor who has a public cloud uh, data center at Amazon, there, there's, just, there's just no way the, the, the breadth of product and service capabilities that Amazon would offer you as a firm, um, there's, there's just no way you can compete with that with on-prem solutions. So, uh, you know, we, we feel good about our decision, and, and that's pretty much the reasons why we decided to change. That's great. Uh, and Mike, you are, uh, so folks, Mike Cavus is uh, one of the members of the delivery, global delivery team. He's a chief architect and has the, basically authored the book, How to Architect the Cloud. So go buy his book. This is his plug. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so Mike, can you add to this a little bit more about the competitive edge that was uh, brought to the bear here? Yeah, I mean, just to, you know, everyone talks about time to market. You know, um, it's the agility factor, right? You know, I've worked in places my whole life where it could take me six months to get a, a server up and move to a world where you can get it up same day or, or really fast. So. There's, there's a lot of advantages to it. The one thing that impressed me about Vanguard, what they did, because uh, the hardest part about moving the cloud is the people in the process, right? You always can get smart people to figure out technology. But they took people from every domain of their business and put them on what they call the cloud construction team. And that's one of the challenges companies have is this whole move is somebody's part-time job and it never really gets done. So they strategically got some top performers and you know, security and development and architecture, all these different groups, and put them in a collaborative room in the area with, you know, torn down cubes, and they worked together as a team and called that the full stack team. And I think that was a critical success factor for them. You know, my, Mike is a, a Giants fan. <laughs> I, I actually think the cloud construction team could beat the Giants this year myself. <laughs> <laughs> we are looking for a quarterback. Right, yeah, all right. So let's get on with it. So the purpose of this uh, particular presentation is to give some real life examples of the lessons learned, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, one of the things that CTP prides itself on is that we are client advocates. And what that means is that we basically come to bear with the best practices of the industry. Like with folks with Jeff, he originally um, engaged myself during what was called the Cloud Adoption Workshop. And we had three days on site with them where he brought in 50 of his closest friends, all right, for within, a, uh, within the Vanguard team and they peppered us with well, no co less. Colleagues. Colleagues, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> colleagues, and they peppered us for three days of how did you do this, why did you pick this people, what was the best practice, what's the use cases, and it was like a series of Q&A questions of lessons learned back then, right? So now we're 18 months later, okay? A lot of road underneath the, the wheels, and now we have a new set of lessons, and this is the value I think that we collectively bring to the, the broader uh, industry is what we call unbiased opinion. Unbiased opinion, right? You read our Doppler, you read our, um, our thought leadership, the people who produce articles and stuff, it's, it's biased to the client. And this is the most important thing that we have. None of our thought leadership comes with commercials. So what you're gonna get here is the real stuff from the people who have actually done it and hopefully you'll get some value out of this hour that you spent to get over here. So let's get started. So Jeff, let's talk a little bit about, um, there we go. 
um, you know, our lesson one here, the dedicated team. So, so Mike, Mike just kind of gave, <laughs> gave away the farm here. Why don't you talk about the dedicated team? Yeah. Why you did that? Well, so when we, were, when we were on our private cloud journey for a year, uh, you still needed to get different groups within the IT shop, within the security organization, just, you know, all kind of pulling the rope the same way just to get the private cloud. And, you know, when you're not in the same organization, when you're not in the same building, and you have different priorities, you, you lack that mission alignment. So right. um, when we decided to pivot and go public, one of the things we knew we needed to fix was uh, get mission alignment with the people that were actually going to get us the public cloud. We knew that was going to be a daunting challenge. So um, there, there was a few things we did. Uh, I, I think the first thing we did is we, we tried to find all the rock stars we could within our own shop. Mm. You know, we, we had a lot of real good infrastructure people working in our existing data center. We had a lot of really good security people, and we had some good people in my shop, and we started to form a nucleus of our own players. But uh, we certainly didn't have AWS experts. So we, we augmented you know, our own rock stars with some, you know, you know, roughly about six to eight key hires from the outside, some of, some of which are actually speaking at the conference this year. And, and keep in mind, this is just 24 months ago. So we did some selected uh, external hires that, again, you know, improved the, improved the quality uh, capability of our team. And then, uh, you know, just to give CTP a plug here, right, um, you know, pursuing a challenge like this, trying to find somebody who's kind of been there, done that, uh, you know, it became clear to us that uh, you know, CTP was, you know, one of the premier, uh, you know, if not the leader of uh, firms trying to help uh, other firms get to the cloud. So, you know, getting a good partner in addition to getting some resources from the outside and augmenting them with our own rock stars was how we put together a team. We called them the cloud construction team. You know, I, I think in most literature you, you would refer to this group as the cloud engineering team. It's your center of excellence. It's your security guys, your CTO guys, your infrastructure guys, you know, all the people you need uh, from an engineering perspective uh, uh, to get on with the work at Amazon. So, um, you know, to me, to, to me, it's lesson one is when we were doing private cloud, we didn't have that cloud construction team in place to get cloud done. We didn't have that mission alignment. And I think we fixed that uh, when we went public. That's great. And Mike, what would you say would be some of the, the challenges when you're actually building these? Uh, the, some people call them full stack teams too, right? You know, how, yeah. do you, how do you protect them? Yeah, so one of, one of the challenges is all these different people report into different silos that have different goals and objectives. And that's one of the challenges is, you know, it's one group, their whole goal in life may be to make sure nothing bad happens, and another group may be to move as fast as possible. So you have all these conflicts. But what really worked well was what we call it sprint zero. You know, we're going to build the, what Amazon calls the, the initial landing zone. Everybody from all these expertise domains were in there together. And the first day was a little rough because everyone had different opinions and perceptions of what cloud was and wasn't. But after two, three days of whiteboarding, uh, everyone kind of got on board because everyone had input into that design. And, every, and we had everyone's perspective in that design. So if it's just the developers designed it, they would do the best job they could with what they know about network and security. But when the network security guys are in there, you know, it all meshes and there was a very good design that came out. And I think a, a lot of tensions kind of settled down after a few days, and then everyone became partners in, in crime, per se. Everyone, they were working together a lot of times for the first time, and it worked really well. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, um, when I first engaged Jeff and his team, and the vision that he had around this, it was uh, really refreshing at the time, because it was fairly unique 
and being able to get executive support to make that happen. And Jeff, so what was that like trying to get executive support to say, hey, I need to carve off this piece and, and to get that kind of thing? What was that, well, that like for you? Uh, again, I can, I can still remember the day we kind of made the decision to pivot to go to public. Again, we were, we were talking to another financial services firm and uh, we had spent some time with them just trying to understand their journey uh, going to public cloud at AWS. And we were still on our private cloud journey. And uh, you know, after spending the day uh, you know, discussing their experience, we were, we were sitting in uh, Boston's airport. So you can try to figure out who we were talking to from there. But um, uh, we were just sitting in the airport. And we, my, my boss and I, we just looked at each other and said, hey, we got to go public cloud. So um, it was. Um, you know, the realization to go public again—it was just—it was—it was all about the the source of value and the notion of putting together this uh, cloud construction team. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're taking on a mission like that, you need players. You know, I guess there's a football saying out there from Mike Ditka, right? You need players to win. It's just not coaching. Uh, but mm. you know, it's the same thing here with yeah. uh, you know tr you're trying to get to public cloud. You you, you really need. Uh, you know, your most talented players to do that. And, you know, when I, when I look out at the group we have, you know, I've been, I've been in this IT field for just about 40 years now. Uh, you know, it is, it is clearly the most talented, uh, engaged, passionate team uh, uh, that I've ever been fortunate to work with. And, and I think you need that to take on a challenge like this. This is a disruption to the way IT has always worked. Right? You always had your own data center. You always did things on-prem. This is, this is right. a major change for the way IT operations, way IT operates. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I would totally agree. We're seeing the same thing in behavior. Yeah. So, so the second one was uh, how to, getting everybody a yes. And this was something that's uniquely yours. And uh, I think it's something that you should put a little R in a circle next to it, because, or yeah. TM next to it. Hey, can you get the yes? With? So can you explain this concept and why it was so important? Yeah. So. Um, you know, when you're, when you go on the public cloud, the notion that you're going to run your workloads in somebody else's facility on somebody else's equipment where maybe an hour ago your competitor was running on the same boxes is, uh, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So um, there's a lot of critical stakeholders in a $5 trillion mutual fund company that are very interested in where you're doing your compute, where you're processing your workloads. They're really interested in where you're putting your data. So when we started to suggest that we were going to rethink our strategy from doing on-prem compute to moving out to the public cloud, those stakeholders uh, got excited, right? So, um, uh, and those stakeholders are legal, their compliance, their data governance, uh, the security guys. Uh, you know, these are all the you know all good people who come to to work Monday through Friday with the idea of protecting and securing your firms. They play a vital role. And when you tell them you're going to move your workloads to a public cloud, they get obviously very stressed over that. So getting them to say yes, that they would be comfortable that we could actually run our workloads uh, in somebody else's facility on somebody else's capital uh, and be as secure as we thought we were in our own facility was what getting to yes was all about. And um, we got a lot of CTP help here, right? Uh, we actually had our security organization run the work stream we called getting to yes, but uh, CTP was a partner there with them and they, they used their experience obviously in, in getting other heavily regulated firms to the cloud uh, to help us get to the cloud. But uh, that, was about an, that was about a six to eight month uh, time frame to get to yes. You know, it was like, hey, we're gonna do this providing 
you demonstrate the controls that need to be in place will indeed be in place when you move your workloads. So um, it, it took us about eight months to make that happen. And uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a repeatable process. We got the yes to do public cloud, but we've actually then had to get to yes for all the different workload types. So hey, we need to have a yes on doing analytics in the cloud. We need to have a yes in doing our web apps in the cloud. Uh, you know, moving some of our legacy applications, our third-party applications. Each of those has different considerations. So we worked through those, that same group of critical cloud stakeholders uh, to try, try to get their support uh, to, to move our workloads. You know, and I wanted to, to chime in on something here with Jeff, and I think he's being rather modest a bit here with the getting to yes part, because I think that overall, um, when, you, when you bump into your organizations whose job it is to protect the brand, protect the client data, right, in a day right now where we had breaches are showing up in, in mm -hmm. huge numbers, right, this particular getting to yes is the, the cannot be overstated the importance of it, number one, but number two, the amount of effort, I think, like that. Yeah, Mike, yeah. do you want to talk about that effort that you guys went through with Jeff? You guys were side by side on this. Yeah. So, obviously, when you're dealing with financial data, there's a lot of policies and controls that go in place. So, the first bit of work is just peeling through that list of endless controls and figuring out what needs to be in place to get the yes. One of the secrets to getting the yes quicker is not take on the world, right? Take on a couple apps or a small subset of apps that minimizes the initial scope of the policy. So, um, we kind of did that, and I think one of the bullets here says, you know, make it make it matter. One of you know, one of the apps we were actually solving a performance issue along the way, so it was a, a visible app, and we were actually solving a business problem. So, um, but there's a lot that goes into it, and there's a lot of existing tooling on prem that just doesn't translate well to the cloud. We'll talk about that later. So there's there's just a lot of chaos. You know, a lot of people who haven't had a deal with the app side all of a sudden. You know, ha, you know, the world's changing, the tools are changing, the processes are changing, and there's a lot of disruption. So um, it's a very pragmatic approach to getting to yes. It's one control at a time. Um, it seemed like the target for a number of controls was always a moving target. It kept increasing and increasing, but at, at one point, we, the, be the beauty of the cloud is you can improve this stuff real fast, right? You can fire it up, you can put all the tools in, you can run these reports, and it can tell you when you're out of compliance and when you have security gaps, and then you could remediate that. So it was an iterative process of, you know, putting a uh, you know, security framework together, monitoring and logging framework together, and then running tools that says, oh, you're out of compliant here, you're out of compliant there. You fix it, and then you're able, it's not just someone saying, yeah, yeah we're secure, it's actually proving that. So it was, you know, it's something that's very hard to do in the physical world. Yeah, I, Mike, I, I think this, this last bullet here, make your first application count, probably you know, the best tip we got was uh, pick something meaningful as your first workload. So we actually, we actually picked an app that would retrieve client data in the cloud you know, from Amazon. So um, the moment you put the client data in, at AWS, uh, all of the stakeholders, again, get very excited that the data's gone off-prem. And, and what, that, what that does, is it forces the build-out of the cloud control manifest, the, the framework you're putting in place to secure things, it builds that out in a much more aggressive way. So if we had just moved a marketing site, you know, public domain type data, not client data, you know, we, we would have built a cloud com control manifest that was this big. But the moment you said you're moving client data, you know, the cloud control manifest had to mature very quickly. 
So we talked about, hey, minimal viable cloud, try to get something up really fast. But the moment, you, the moment that that app was pulling client data, you ended up with maximum security implementation. Right, right. So it was kind of like a minimal viable cloud, but a maximum security implementation. And the end result was north of 200 controls had to be identified and activated for our cloud antibodies, all those critical stakeholders, um, to be comfortable that we could do something at uh, AWS as, as securely uh, and as compliantly as we could actually do it on-prem. So, you know, that was a real good tip. Like, you know, if, if you're just starting out on your cloud journey, uh, pick something meaningful. Obviously, it's easier if you do a, a marketing website and you're dealing with public domain data. But if you really want to force your program to mature real quickly, uh, go pick something meaningful. Perfect. Uh, I couldn't agree more. All right. So next one uh, is our. Um, <laughs> this one I'm going to start with with the, the um, Mike here on this one because uh, Mike's a, a huge advocate of DevOps and what DevOps means. So we'll right. pivot over to what that meant to Vanguard here. So Mike, why don't you tell us a bit about that one? Yeah. So I, I kind of have a a screed on Twitter very often about what is and what is not DevOps, and often. People think that DevOps is CI/CD or IT automation, and to CTP and to our clients, DevOps is kind of from inception of an idea till that idea is running securely and compliantly in the cloud. It's and it's all the people, process, and technology involved in that. So, um, and a lot of places we go into, you know, they'll create a DevOps team and they'll write scripts and nothing really changes, right? You know, they haven't fixed process issues, they haven't fixed tooling issues, they haven't, they just automated stuff. And, um, and Vanguard got that, right? They got that, you know, DevOps is, is bigger than writing code. So um, some of the things we did um, during, during this engagement, you know, we couldn't look at everything, but we looked at a certain value stream. And uh, if you can picture, you know, if you've ever done those business process engineering, you fill up a board this fall or you know, arrows going this way and that way, they had this really long process, and in the middle was the CICD process, and it was green, green meant automated. And a lot of these other boxes on both ends were kind of blue, and blue meant manual. And my, my point driving home on DevOps is more in automation is, it don't matter how fast you can get CICD to go, there was 30 to 60 days of process before and after, and you have to fix that as well. It's not just a technology thing. In fact, we're on lesson three, and we've hardly talked about technology. If there's one takeaway from this, is it's probably the biggest blockers to moving to the cloud is the people and process issues. So you have to address them at the same time that you're addressing the technology issues. Yeah. So, so what, what I'll add here is, uh, you know, we're talking about getting to cl you know the cloud journey, but I would imagine your firm has got multiple transformations going on at the same time, much like Vanguard. So we were transforming the way we wanted to do compute you know, a more agile compute architecture cloud. But at the same time, we were uh, moving towards a more agile uh, software architecture. So we're, you know, moving into microservices and so forth. So, you know, we we're changing the one side of IT, the guys that build all the software. We we're also changing the other side of IT, which is the guys that provided the compute at the same time. So when, when when I think of DevOps, um, you know, I have a certain view of what DevOps mean, and it's been influenced by, you know, a lot of good thought leaders in the industry. We, we rely on Gartner for a lot of thought leadership. Uh, ThoughtWorks uh, is another source of good leadership, and there's a lot of great seminal books on DevOps. But 
when you read all that stuff, what you find out is that everybody thinks about DevOps as, as, as something different. It, it, and like Mike said, it's not just a CI CD pipeline. It's not just uh, changes in the technology stack you're using. Yes, it's, it's automated infrastructure. Yes, it's automated build, package, and deploy of your apps. But we tend to have a very comprehensive view of DevOps. So we, we, we think it's uh, you know, architecture and technology change for sure, but we think it's process change. We think it's organizational change. We think it's uh, a big culture change. We definitely don't think it's the ops guys sitting with the dev guys, right? right. Yeah, that's one small component of it. Uh, you know, it, but it, it's not like, hey, let's get those op guys, sit with the dev guys, and we're done this DevOps thing. Uh, it's, you know, the DevOps change is a much broader change. So, so one of the big challenges we had is, hey, should we, should we promote getting to DevOps at the same time we're moving the workloads to the cloud? So we're not in the cloud and we're not at DevOps. Should we kind of tackle, tackle both of those transformations at the same time? So as workloads move to the clouds, expect the delivery teams that support those workloads to actually be operating in a DevOps way. So we kind of synchronize those two change events, do DevOps and cloud at the same time. Uh, I know there's books that say, hey, you can do DevOps uh, on mainframes and you can do DevOps on-prem and not cloud. I'm not a huge advocate of that. Uh, I, think, I, I think you need the, the automated uh, provisioning of your infrastructure. I think you need, the, uh, obviously, the CI-CD pipelines in place and so forth. I think, I think DevOps is a, is a much easier change when you're, you're cloud-based in your development and where you're going to execute your workload. So we did make a conscious decision to, to synchronize those two change events. Yeah, and I, there's, a, there's a, you had written, Micah, an article about um, uh, agility is the new uh, currency, right? You know, we, could, we can spend all day you know, arguing about TCO and economics, and it's going to be 30% less money to run your infrastructure on, uh, on, in the AWS environment versus that on on-prem, and you can get in a financial conversation around that. And it becomes actually a, a place to have an argument. All right, so, but when you start thinking about what DevOps truly means is about eliminating waste, right, and right. collapsing that, and then you have to, I think what we lose sometimes is the conversation about why we want to do a DevOps mentality, why do we want to get there, it's because we want to collapse the cycle, we want to take the waste out of the whole process. That needs to translate into an economic conversation. If you can't translate that, what Jeff was just talking about right there, into um, the currency of being able to compete at high speed. You know, Vanguard's a, a, a huge force in the marketplace that's just as vo uh, uh, vulnerable to the fintech startups. I mean, and this is a huge challenge for folks that are used to doing something a certain way in the financial services industry. So DevOps, and tell me if I am got that right. The other thing I'll add to that is that um, you can get a small group of developers and put them on AWS, and they can move at lightning speed, but at scale. scale. At scale, you have to address organizational structures, process, and all that. And if you don't, you know, Amazon can release all these great things, but if you still have to go through a three-month process to get approval to get stuff, what have you accomplished? And I wrote an article a while back called the ROI Killer, and it's really the, ROI, the biggest ROI killer of cloud is your ability to execute. So we'll go do this great TCO analysis, and there'll be some great numbers, but if it takes you three years to turn something off, your ROI is shot because you haven't turned anything off, and you've got this bill running over here. So it, and DevOps is a critical component of that. If you just look at cloud and don't do something conscious like they did and said we need to change the way we look at software development at the same time, 
you're probably, your ROI is probably going to get shot because you're not going to shut anything off. Now you've got like a double bill. Yeah, good stuff. All right, so, so <laughs> uh, requires a new operating model. So I have this, um, this basic saying that if you're not, if you're trying to drive this train of cloud down, down the tracks, right, and if you haven't laid the right tracks, the train's going to crash. Yeah, period. And, and Jeff, you guys were so focused on the operating model up front, day one, before you moved to anything. Yeah. Uh, it was so important. Yeah, Robert, we were, we were focused on it, but I'm not so sure we hit it out of the park on that one. Right. You know, our, our, like. we, we, we were really successful with getting to yes and the security work stream, and we were really successful in building out the landing zones to actually locate our workloads once they're at Amazon. Um, there was always this, this DevOps thing we had to deal with at the same time, and I, I thought we dealt with that pretty good. Um, the, the ops model was, was, was something we kind of got after a little late. Um, we knew it was out there in the beginning, but I would say, uh, you know, we, we've been kind of 911ing, trying to get the operational procedures in place. So, so what happened was we get all these landing zones, we're ready to move workloads, and all the delivery shops are, wow, there's a new way to operate when you run your workloads in the cloud. That they know how to operate when the workloads are running in our data centers. That they've been doing it for the last 40 years. But the moment you start running your workloads at Amazon, you know, the process changes, the tooling changes. And unless you have real clear articulation of that particular change event, your delivery shops get pretty stressed about moving the workload. So you're ready to go, and they're like, hey, operationally, I'm not so sure we're ready. So I think it was another lesson we learned was, uh, you, know, you know, we had to put a little more effort into the operational procedures. And even today, um, you know, we're working hard at that. Uh, you know, there's certain operational procedures that uh, have huge impact when you go to the cloud. Uh, and there are certain operational procedures that have small impacts. So, you know, what we did was, uh, you know, just, we, we prioritized the ones that had the most impact and got after them first, and we're gone after the other ones, you know, second and third. But the operational procedures is, is another clear opportunity to try to get something right, or people are going to resist moving the workloads even though you think you're ready. So, Jeff, let me ask a question around this one. Um, uh, did you take the same thinking around an operational team ring fence in them as well around that? Did the, did the cloud construction team take on the operation model as well, or did that yeah. get transitioned over? How does that look? The, the cloud construction team, that, that center of excellence, has, has taken on the responsibility of getting the new operational procedures in place. Uh, AWS would refer to that as your cloud operating model. You need to have a new cloud operating model in place before you migrate. That's a prerequisite. So yes, the, the cloud construction team owned that. Um, and, and our cloud construction team actually owns, for the most part, the operational support. So as workloads move to the cloud, all of our platforms that are now AWS-based, uh, the folks that design those landing zones and, and help build them out on top of the out-of-box AWS services, they're kind of think it, build it, run it team. So they're re actually responsible for the production support of those platforms. Um, so th you know, that's another key decision you need to make. Um, you know, how are you going to provide operational support for the platform itself? And that's on top of actually getting the operational procedures in place for the folks who actually have to integrate, you know, interface with the new operations team. Right. Mike, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just came from a, a DevOps conference, and we were seeing companies that have been, been on this DevOps journey for five years. And, you know, all this stuff can be intimidating. There's a lot of change. But... You have to take it, just like they took two apps, you have to take a first crack at an operating model. You have to start somewhere. But what, what we've seen is as 
as companies spend more and more time running on the cloud, they start to change the model, right? And the whole essence of DevOps is continuous learning, continuous improvement. So pick something and start, get a couple apps in the cloud, and then learn how to run, and then you'll mature over time. And what, what we're seeing, what I saw at the, the DevOps conference out in San Francisco is, it's all about bottleneck. So the first bottleneck we always try to solve is infrastructure. How do we automate infrastructure? And that's where everyone kind of starts. And then once we kind of get that going, it's like, well, what's the next bottleneck? Well, it's security and QA. How do we shift that left? And that's where a lot of companies are today, where a lot of stuff's in the CICD pipeline. But the companies that are five years down the road in this journey, their next bottleneck is organization structure and process. And they start shifting that left. And where a lot of these companies are like five years in, they're actually shifting everything into the business units. And what you have is a cloud platform team is putting guardrails on AWS and creating self-service capabilities, and they're hardening everything, you know, an in infrastructure layer, but the business units now are, they'll, they'll have what they call T-shaped management, and they'll have the same manager will own, build, and run. And the, the governance teams define the policies, but they don't get to define how you implement them. And that's one of the biggest bottlenecks today, you know, we haven't transitioned to a journey is, you know, the governance and security teams may say, you must solve this problem like this. And sometimes that problem is how you solve it in a data center, it's not how you solve it in a cloud. It creates a lot of friction, creates a lot of stop gaps. So my, my message here is pick an operating model that works for you, uh, but you know, have, have an environment where everyone can continuously get feedback and learn, and you're gonna transition that, the operating model over time. And hopefully you get to a level of maturity of trust and automation and compliance where you can start pushing a lot of that responsibility into the business units because you may have a team that's building a, a transaction-based system that needs a lot more eyeballs on it and you don't want them to have to run the same operating model as a team that's just changing web pages every day. And that's, that's another mistake I see a lot out in the industry is this binary view of every app or service or product team must behave like X. And you shouldn't have to. Some, some Shops or some business units need to deliver 10 times a day, some don't, and they shouldn't be held to the same standard. Yeah, I, I think Mike actually had a, a good tip there right in the beginning, and I don't think we, we did this very well at Vanguard, but you know, um, learn by doing. Get on the field and start playing. Get a workload at Amazon and uh, start learning what's going on. Um, you know, we're, we're very conservative. Uh, we're very much uh, paranoid about any kind of... Uh, a security issue that we, we might have given the, the highly regulated environment that we operate in. So we, we want to have everything perfect before we go. But uh, if you have the ability to get out the AWS quickly and get on the field and start playing and, and start iterating through your cloud operating model and your procedures and even the technical stacks you've built out, I, I think you're going to be in a much better spot than trying to be overly prescriptive about all that stuff up front. Uh, that, that to me is a lesson. We, we, we wanted to do that, but uh, again, we just weren't, we didn't have a lot of success um, getting anything moved until we thought we were 100% ready. So, and, and uh, Jeff has a really interesting point. So what we've noticed over the last year is that clients were asking for how can, do you have an operating model out of the box? Yeah. Right? Do you have something that, that we could use today? They were always asking us, what's the best of breed right now for an operating model? And so we came out with something called a kickstart, and, and the kickstart was the best of breed 
what we considered the functional pieces that were necessary to run the core components for what we call central IT services, identity, encryption, you know, um, logging and monitoring, you know, all the key pieces that were necessary. And we introduced it to the organization. This was a, um, a bit of a fail on our part as we introduced it to everybody and they said, yes, yeah, exactly what we want except for that piece. No, we don't like that component of it. And they would start pulling it apart and then putting their fingerprints all over it, right? Because it had to be fit their old toll, which is going to lead us into the right. next conversation. And so we kind of undid all the things that we said, hey, just accept this piece. And what we found out is that um, in the financial services uh, world, and if you're a, a, a FSI type company, um, you're going to need to have your fingerprints all over this thing. The operating model is going to take the time. It's just going to happen. If you're in manufacturing or retail, you're more likely to be able to accept that kind of out-of-the-box model because it's you know, turnkey, and literally it stands up in less than a day, right? It's all Terraform code, and it comes together, and it piles up, and you've got a highly redundant 2AZ core central system that you can attach a VPC to and peer right into it, and you're ready to start developing immediately. Highly compliant, highly regulated, passes a whole bunch of... Um, of audit stuff. However, back to Mike and what Jeff says, if there are people inside your organization that want to have, for lack of better words, they need to have relevance inside the solution, right? They want to be in there and they want to have their say and they want to be able to, to comment or at least uh, say validate something, that could be a challenge, right? So you have to weigh it where, where you're at. So we're going to lead into this next, next one, and this is the one I like the most, and I'm going to start with Mike, and that is bringing your, your old toys to the new playground, right? Okay, so uh, Mike, you want to start on that one? Yeah, it's like you know, trying to play modern music on an eight-track player. Right now. <laughs> you see, we see real often that you know, I, I'm not particularly talking about these, but but in general, you know, I, I have this shirt that has this vendor on it. Therefore, I love these guys, and they buy me lunch, and I need this tool over here. But this tool doesn't work over here, right? And in a lot of places, these these people. They scream loud enough, they get their way, and the amount of work that it takes, if, if you can even get it to work and integrate and backhaul data and do all this stuff, just kind of blows your agility out the door. And, and one of the problems is, um, and one of, the, one of the problems you guys had around the logging solution, there was a whole years of reporting and tooling built around that. And the problem is that that particular logging solution didn't play well in the cloud. So there was a lot of give and take to, hey, this is the reasons why you need to move to a modern logging solution in the cloud. And you know, some of this stuff you're going to have to re replace, right? It was custom code. But there, there's many examples of that. But that, that's another thing you need to think about is, and budget for is there's going to be a lot of new tools. And a lot of them are SaaS-based tools, so they're different subscription modeling. So like your procurement team's got to be part of this team, right? There's a right. lot of stuff that's changing. Right. And if it takes you six to eight months to procure a solution and your target dates to deliver in five months, well, you've got to change something, right? So we ran into that a few times as well. So part of the assessment we do is what tools do you have today? What are your requirements for the cloud? And then, okay, what tools will work? And even if they work, here's the top three recommended tools in that category. And then you just need to make a business decision. Do you want to change to something new or do you want to try to make this thing work over there? And the, the amazing thing about it, every year I come to this session, is a lot of the tools we recommend just get put out of business when these guys <laughs> announce a new, new solution. I can think of a couple today. Yeah, a couple so, today got put out of business, right? Yeah, yeah so, you know, 
That's another reason to not build on top of these solutions. You plug these solutions in in a very open way. So if it, and that's another reason for the SaaS model, if you can go with it. The SaaS model, you, know, you pay for use and you can get out of it if the Amazon releases something better or another vendor releases something better or you don't like the solution. Yeah, Mike. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, just real quick comment here. I mean, you know, over the 18 months that we worked with you guys, uh, it was very interesting to watch the give and take between, you know, the, the guys who understood cloud suggesting, hey, here's the appropriate tooling for this task, and the guys that knew how we did it on-prem in our existing facilities. And, you know, some of the times we lost those battles, Mike, right? <laughs> and we stayed with the existing tool, and some of the times we changed the tool out uh, but I felt like we went through that process of here's another tool opportunity, and we knew there was going to be a debate and a battle, uh, and you know that probably played out 15 or 20 times over the 18 months. So it's it's clearly a, a, an area of activity you spend a lot of time on. Yeah. So do not underestimate that. As you're looking at your schedules, if you're here, if you're a PMO office right now, or if you're working with your project management teams, make sure you block in enough time for procurement, selection, contract negotiation, EAs, etc. Um, that have to be put in place for some of these organizations. And, and potentially, if you select a tool vendor who is not enterprise grade or highly available architectures, you're going to have situations where, let's say you're doing some redundancy work, uh, uh, HA structures between AZs, and their system may or may not be able to support that. Right? Here's the other part that's really important, I, and this goes back to your operating model is that your vendors that you select have to co-cooperate with each other from a tagging and metadata uh, point of view. So, for example, if you're going to be driving just simply some basic consumption model where you're looking at how do I just charge back financing, right, to the right groups, and you're having to take care of that around, they all have to play right in the same sandbox. So if they're dealing with tagging differently or they don't do tagging at all, Right. You have challenges, right? You have management issues. You have operational management issues that are, that are going to be really challenging, let alone does it even function in the world, right? I guess the, the point to add to that is um, if you go into the tool selection with the same set of requirements you use on-prem, you're going to miss the ball, miss right? Because there's some new requirements, and there may be some requirements that don't exist anymore. So, you know, one of the first things you need to do is look at what does what a tool in the cloud have to do? You know, if we have this security monitoring framework in mind, you know, it needs to be able to tie into this. It needs to have APIs so Amazon can talk. There's all these things. But the, I think probably the biggest blocker of all the things that we experienced was contract signing. Because some of these right. vendors are new to the cloud, too. They've just taken their solution and now they have a cloud solution. And they still don't have a really cloud-friendly um, rules in, in terms of engagement. So there's a lot of back and forth with lawyers, the lawyers yeah. and these companies. So, you know, you, you can get up in front of your CEO and say, we're going to do this in six months. Just remember, there's a lot of procurement and legalese time that you, and you probably want to get people in procurement and legal kind of dedicated or at least dotted line and alerted up front that we're going to be doing all this stuff and all this stuff's coming. And we're going to have to somehow escalate this. It can't take six to ten months anymore. So Jeff, Jeff actually did something on day one for our presentation. I asked him to do it and he listened actually. He says, can you get procurement and project management in the room day one yeah. of our cloud adoption program so they can hear this message? This was 18 months ago. And Jeff, you yeah. did that. Well, we, we actually had legal, pro we had all the cloud antibodies there, right? We had procurement, legal, <laughs> compliance, uh, uh, all our friends were there, and um, you know it was interesting to watch, you know, the body language in the room when we talked about going to public cloud, and you know they were sharing a lot of their concerns. But uh, um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call a little audible here. Yeah, Charles, please do, uh, Robert. Uh, so hey, there was five lessons, but you know there, there, 
There could have been 50. Right. And one of my colleagues at Megan Kennedy, who's sitting right out there, told me at lunch today, um, you know, you know, as as we reflect back on our journey, you know, one of the things, you know, she she sent me this text while the keynote was on, and it was like, wow, it would just be so much easier if all the senior players, you know, whether it's business people, IT people, security guys, procurement guys, if, if they could kind of hear and feel the excitement that you get when you're at an AWS conference, you know, to, to get that mission alignment. So, you know, what's something else we could have done better and what I would suggest you guys do better? Create the awareness and the education of what you're trying to do with the decision makers and I think it'll make your job of getting to where you want to go a lot better because the resistance is there and it's strong. Uh, there's a way of doing things that people are comfortable with. And you know, while they, they, while they, they know the hype around cloud, it, it's a very spooky thing to them, most people. And I think the more you can get your senior decision makers on board from the IT side, the business side, and all of those other critical stakeholders that are so important to the firm, the security guys and the data governance guys and so forth. I think that's another huge lesson learned we had. And Great. another thing to do, which we talked we, about. We, we could have done a better job yeah. at that, right? Another thing to do is you know, get those leaders of those organizations, take a road trip to Amazon, you know, yeah. carve out a couple days, you know, spend time with Andy, Jesse, and the team, and, and, and really get to learn about that company and the capabilities. Yeah. Our, our account is ex back there. He hasn't set that up for us yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> There's an EBC list set up, right? Okay. Yeah. That's great. So I, I would actually agree with that. Yeah. One of the things that Amazon does better than anybody that I personally have learned as a partner with them from the, from the very beginning, right? So we did some work with Amazon yeah. in the early days around uh, federal um, uh, financial services organizations some four years ago, and that's how we got started. And that was their obsession on the client. They simply just didn't pay attention to any of the competitors. They were so focused on the client and what does the client want? and not invent something and say, hey, look at what we invented, do you want it? They would go to the client and say, hey, client, what do you need? And then they would turn back with something and they said, hey, we think you might need a little extra here. And they would go, oh yeah, I didn't think about that, right? And so we as CTP, at least me personally, and I know Mike, you know, every time we get in front of a client, we wanna say, hey, how do we mimic this type of behavior? And I think it served us well. And um, I hope that you'll pick that away too. So this is gonna pivot into the last part of our, our session. And if you do have questions, raise your hand. I mean, it's just us in here right now. There you go. Yes, sir. Speak up. No, you can, if you can yell. Thank you very much. Uh, what about business build, building a business case? Yes. You haven't mentioned that. So uh, have you done that? Yes. How are you going to back from the perspective of months, what is the process, how valuable you are it, and how accurate you are? Okay, so the question was, is the, did we help them build a business case and how accurate it was and how did you use it? Can I get that right? Jeff, you want to answer that real quick? Well, this guy right here, I can remember him when they came in and sold the job to come in and help us. He was talking about saving like 60 to 70 percent oh. of your distributed computing <laughs> capabilities. So I, I was 70 percent. I, I was in, but um, <laughs> you know, and you hear you hear some crazy numbers. Yeah. I, I've kind of settled in, you know, conceptually that you know you're going to save at least 30 percent of your distributed computing cost. Uh, so when you say, what's the business case? It's not just a financial thing, right? We actually lead with the agility, the, the speed you get, but you know, we, I do think there's 30% uh, savings in your operations budget that you, you allocate to distributed computing. Um, and what, what the, these guys, as part of the cloud adoption framework that they follow, one of the things they do is they look at 
different workload types and they do a TCO analysis on it. Hey, here's what it costs to run on-prem and here's what it, you're probably going to, uh, here's what it's probably going to cost you to run off-prem. And if they do five different TCOs, um, you know, hey, this workload you're going to save 50%, this workload you're going to save 20, you know, it came out to like 30, 35% on average. Uh, it, so it was, I would view it as a lightweight business case, but it was kind of like supporting data by studying some workloads about what you would get in the way of savings for different workload types. And we've kind of hung our hat on that as uh, that's the source of value we can get financially from going to the public cloud. Right. I, I wanted to get to that. Could we get to that one slide yep. uh, about uh, the migration strategy? Yes, let's uh, talk about that one. Because this, this was actually a lesson learned for me too. You know, whenever, when everybody starts going to the cloud, you start thinking of like moving everything out of your existing data centers and getting the stuff to the cloud. It's about moving apps. And uh, that's where we were for the, the first uh, 12 months of our journey. It was like, hey, how do we get this stuff moved? How do, how do we get all these software assets that we've built over the last you know, 30, 40 years, and how do we get them over to AWS? Um, we, have, we have pivoted on that strategy as well. Uh, you know, it, it isn't about moving everything. To us, it became about moving the traffic. How do we get the apps that have the workloads moved? And how do you get the apps that, that act where, where, all your, where all your processing is coming from moved in a cloud-native way. So at Vanguard, we're kind of fortunate that we have fairly generous uh, uh, discretionary uh, uh, budget allocation to redo a lot of our software uh, with, with some good regularity. So when we, so that in, in the spirit of the, is it the five R's? Is that what it is, five R's? Uh, you know, we kind of refactor a lot of software every year which means we refactor it and we build it out in a cloud-native way. So we're refactoring the software where most of the key processing is at. So if you were to log on to our e-commerce sites, you know, the critical clicks that most of our clients do, you know, when we get the two million logons every day, we're refactoring the, the, high, the high click pages first. So we'll, we'll, we'll move a small percentage of the apps, but a large percentage of the traffic Again, that to me is a lesson learned from us. Uh, you know, I, you know, when I, even when I walk around uh, the conference this year, everybody's talking about moving apps, moving apps, and you're just you know, lifting and shifting. I think it's really important that you, uh, you think hard about what's the value you're going to get out of moving something versus the value you're going to get out of moving traffic. Uh, I, I, would, I would encourage you guys to move, have your goal be to move traffic, not so much apps. I, I think that was evident in the uh, uh, Expedia presentation yeah. today. Yeah. I thought was actually quite good about the value of all those lines of C code that they were um, refactoring as a process to move into the platform. You had a question, sir. So let me repeat the questions. The question was, is how did Vanguard work with the regulatory bodies as they were making the, the, the movement to cloud, and what did that look like in the process? Yeah, so I need to call a friend on this one, but um, what I mean by that is we had an SLC work stream, security legal compliance work stream. So it was kind of like, here's a work stream. That's where all the legal lawyers were. That's where all the security guys were. That's where all the compliance people were. So they understood what we were trying to do. And again, they, they made sure we had the appropriate controls in place and they dealt with all of those concerns that you might have from compliance organizations or even from your customers. You know, we have contracts with customers that say, hey, you have to have your data, our data behind your firewall. So we actually had to go work with our customers to actually get their 
support that we could actually move their data from, uh, from behind our own firewalls. But that was kind of like a behind-the-scenes effort for me, like how they actually did it, how they contacted regulatory agencies or how they contacted customers, I'm not sure. But it happened out of what, what we call the SLC workstream, the Security Legal and Compliance workstream. So I can add on that. I know that AWS, uh, they have a representative back here in the back. He, the AWS has a dedicated team that works with regulatory bodies, okay? And if you have to put your audit, risk, and compliance group in touch with them, they're more, that's what they're there for, to not only educate the, the regulatory uh, bodies, but also how to talk to them in the same language that, that they're trying to bring to the table. You know, where the attestation exists, what services are covered, how do you uh, align those, and then how do you put in the systems that attest to your, your control objectives so that you can pass that audit, right? And okay. so these are, that's a whole other piece. Yes, sir? Okay, so the question was, can we speak to bubble costs? I'm thinking you're right up to the front, right? The bubble of implementation, how long and up front? Uh, I'll pass it over. I have an opinion on it, and we have the evidence, but I'll go to, to Jeff here at how to, but that was in Vanguard. Um, probably not gonna have a great answer here, but um, we have a fairly lean team that's doing the cloud work. So, you know, we talk about that cloud engineering team. Um, it's probably south of 50 people. We're a 4,000 person IT shops. So we may have 50 people working on cloud. We probably have 500 people working in our existing data center facilities. So you know, there's the bubble cost probably associated with making the investment to actually be able to land your workloads at Amazon. To take 50, divide by five, five people per million, you can kind of figure out what you're kind of investing in getting to, to you know, in terms of the technical staff on an annual basis to, 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 to get to Amazon. Um, I, I know there's a storyline around the, the bubble costs associated with the investment that, hey, you got, you got all this on-prem capital that's running your current workloads at the same time you're, you're moving to Amazon, and, and, and what do you do with that? Uh, Mike, I might, I might actually defer to you two guys to, to provide some counsel there, but I, I know even Amazon or AWS will help you with some of that bubble cost as part of your migration activity. Yeah, there's, there's what's called the MRP program, which is the, um, their MAP, which is their migration acceleration program, which helps offset some of that bubble cost if you're doing a migration of a certain size, right? So there's a whole team that does that. Um, but more importantly, though, I think it's very use case driven, right? So it, it depends on the size of your organization. So there has to be some degree of scale here, right, and to get you some value. More importantly, we're seeing the higher paybacks in those that have stronger, or I'd say stronger, larger dev teams that are um, uh, restricted in their behavior around um, central teams and their ability to provision, their ability to react, their ability to change. And so those can be offset through, the, like we said earlier, the, the value of currency of agility, right? And, but you have to put that into a term and language that CFOs and business units can understand so when they write the checks, they see the value. All right, so the best companies that we see here that are able to attack that bubble are those that have a demonstrated use case that they go and they say, well, for example, we heard one today. Um, it was the HPC, high performance computing, right? They had, you know, 500 cores on site. And there was a waiting list of 30 days for them to push their jobs through to get them to run like that. The team went to Amazon instead basically use core native services and we're able to push that down to three days. So 30 versus three, 
right? So was there a ROI for getting the on-prem 500 cores out? Probably not, but let me tell you what the agility currency just did. And you document that, you write a white paper internally, you publish that together, and then you have to literally go around evangelizing and socializing it to get the momentum to fund the bubble. And it, it, that's good. I hope that answered your question. Mike, did you have one answer to that at all? Uh, I think you got that one. I think I got that one? Yeah, that's part of my deal, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Repeat that, I'm sorry. Hey, okay. You would have to adapt or they're interested in how you guys dealt with those. Yeah. So, okay, let, me, let, sure. me, let me repeat the question for yeah, somebody. Right. How, how did they deal with legacy change management, uh, ITIL processes that might be in play, right? How did you go about dealing with um, getting out of the cabs as often as they have to be when you actually, it's all about change that's constantly opening and down and changing like that in the marketplace? Really, did you help them transform? Right, yeah, yeah. right, 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 yeah. So we're, in the, we're still in the process of doing some of this, but initially we took an ITIL approach. Hey, here, here's the ITIL framework. You know, here, here's 2025 ITIL capabilities. So you specifically called out change. Um, change was one of those ITIL capabilities that we would have said, hey, a low impact. There, there, you know, our, our policy around change isn't gonna be all that different. Um, for a lot of our cloud native stuff that we were running on PCF, uh, you know, we basically had adjusted our change policy when we ran it on-prem uh, initially. So we were able to kind of move, do, do continuous delivery, move changes into Pride uh, without the, the normal, formal, you know, arduous change control that most firms are used to. And, and therefore, that, that policy just kind of stayed the same when we took our PCF-based microservices that were running on-prem and we started moving those to the cloud. So, so some... Some of the ITIL processes, not much, not much changed. But you take an ITIL process like you know, logging and monitoring, your ability to get telemetry into how your system is performing, you know, you, you do, that was completely overhauled uh, in terms of how we were going to do that and the security policies around all that intelligence that we wanted to bring back on-prem and you know, give visibility into the appropriate people that need to see that, including security organizations and so forth. So we kind of, so our approach was, ITIL capability by ITIL capability, assess whether it's a low, medium, or high change, and then rewrite the operational procedures accordingly. And one, right. one of the assessments we do early on before we build the landing zones is DevOps Cloud Ops assessment. And you capture a lot of those, what are these processes, and we identify what you should change to, but you can't do it all at once. So there, there's the roadmap, right? MVC one, because you have a date, make these changes. And along with your technology roadmap, you have the, you know, the ITIL-like roadmap. And, and a big piece of, of ITIL, we've experienced a lot of companies, you can, you don't, there's, ITIL is not bad, you just can automate a lot of the rubber stamping. And you can do a lot of that through metadata tagging of your, of your instances. Um, Jenkins and whatever tool you use can automatically create tickets when you create instances. So there's a lot of things you can automate and then the rubber stamping becomes an after-the-fact thing instead of a gate. So once you trust in your automation that all this stuff's working, then you just do periodic reviews and say, are we still in compliant with this? And there's also compliance tools that you run to, that run to make sure you're still compliant. So it, just like anything else, there's a people, there's a process and a technology roadmap that are in sync. Because you can't, it's too much to tackle at once. So uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here. Um, uh, 
if you have any other questions, kind of get us up after, after we come off stage here. But I wanted to thank Jeff Doubts for joining us today. We appreciate it. And, uh, my, my good friend, Mike Cavus. Thank you so much, Mike, for being up here as well. Yep. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time out here. I hope you got something valuable, and we'll see you out there next time. All right, thank you. Have a good night.